Hello, my Rebels. Today, there's an incredible chase on the streets of Los Angeles. Not the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase, something much more terrifying. A mob chasing a driver of a Prius, no less, who tries to get away from the mob, but they chase him and catch him. It's incredible. I'll describe it to you in the podcast, but I wish you could see it. And to do so, you can simply become a subscriber to what we call Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnews.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. That's not bad. You get the video version of these podcasts, plus access to Sheila Gunn-Reed's show and David Menzies' show, too. Okay, here's today's podcast. Tonight, what would life be like if Joe Biden wins the presidency in 39 days? Los Angeles gives us a glimpse on September 25th, and this is the Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. It's just 39 days till the U.S. election. You wouldn't know by Joe Biden's campaign schedule. His campaign calls a lid every morning around 9.30. Calling a lid is what it's called when you give advice to the media on your campaign that you're done for the day. There's nothing else expected, no more events, no more statements. The workday is done so the media can go back to their hotels or whatever, file their stories. Biden's campaign has been calling a lid every morning at around 9.30 a.m., that's got to be unprecedented. You're running for the presidency. You're the candidate of one of the two major parties. It's 39 days out, and you just quit every day at 9.30? No interviews, no events? It's sad, nothing else. Did you see this speech he gave on Constitution Day? <coughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to the nation's Constitution Center. I had the great privilege of being... Uh, the guest leader of this outfit for a year. <clears throat> it's an appropriate place to make the speech I'm about to make. I'm sorry he's not well. They probably give him a shot of something, adrenaline, I don't know, just a <coughs> needle in the tush to give him an hour of lucidity and energy. Then they get him away from microphones and cell phone cameras. I really don't know how he'll get through a debate. I truly believe they're going to try and come up with an excuse like that he's caught COVID. I bet you they'll say that. I, I doesn't seem to have hurt the Democrats, though. I think their support for their party is just as solid as Trump's support amongst Republicans. Just like the daily scandals that CNN or the New York Times pumps out on Donald Trump. Oh, we've got him now. It hasn't worked for the past five years. I think Democrats' faith in their party is just as unshakable. They don't care if Joe Biden is non-compass mentis. They don't care. Kamala Harris will do just fine. She's already thinking about being the president in all but name. I think that was what behind uh, this slip the, of the tongue the other day. Take a look. You need to make sure you have a president in the White House who actually sees you, who understands your needs, who understands the dignity of your work, and who has your back. A Harris administration together with Joe Biden. A Harris administration with Joe Biden. 
That sounds about right. There was a moment when the Democrats hated Harris. She was a prosecutor who really went after low-income families, after black families. She prosecuted parents whose kids uh, skipped school. She was brutal. She laughed about it. She bragged about it. To everyone, a friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out. She brought all the kids into the living room, held up the letter, said, if you don't go to school, Kamala's going to put you and me in jail. <laughs> yes, we achieved intended effect. Yeah. Anyways, it's weird because some people might call that being tough on crime, suing moms who have troubled families, except that Biden-Harris are the opposite of tough on crime, real crime. They've either expressly or implicitly supported the Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots these past months. And I want to show you something from last night. This is from Los Angeles. Take a look at this. It's a Prius trying very carefully to get by a street protest, not running over anyone, just trying to get through. Didn't hit anyone. Did you see that? Didn't hit anyone. Driving away. Oh, my God, they're chasing. They're chasing. He knows it. And he drives away. Okay, he think he's in the clear now. He didn't hit anyone. He's driving away, but look, look behind him now. This is shot by, look who's chasing him. They're chasing him on foot, but also in a truck and a motorcycle. They're chasing him blocks away now. Blocks away. And they run in front of him. They stop him. That's him in the little Prius. And they jump out. And he's in, he tries to back up. Is he reaching in? Is he reaching through the window? Is his arm in? He looks like he's arm, his arm is in. The driver is backing up more, hits another car that was chasing. Now they're getting out. They're swarming the car. They're, they're smashing the windows. They're going to take a bike and smash the window. That's a pole. Here's a bike. Smash the back window. Smashing the front window. And he drives away. Another block. This is a large six-lane road. He pulls over. There's a police car. He comes up with his hands up. He's obviously not injured too much. He can stand up and walk backwards without stumbling. The police tells him, hands up. The police handcuff him. There's a gun in the hand of the other cop. And here it is from another point of view. This is an edited version. You can see gently nosing through, not rolling over anyone. There's no one injured. But they decide to run. They decide to chase him. Block him. They didn't box him in. They tried to. You can see the lights from the helicopters overhead. He drives away to be arrested and handcuffed. I tell you, I'd never thought I'd cheer for a Prius in my life before. Never get out of your car when a mob swarms you. They will kill you. Now that's in a city with a Democrat mayor, a Democrat police chief, a Democrat city council, a Democrat governor of the state, two Democrat senators, including Kamala Harris, a state that overwhelmingly votes Democrat in presidential races federally, a state with sanctuary cities and green energy and all the woke wokeness. That's their epitome. That's what they want every place in America to be like. California is their creation. What Texas is to the right, or maybe South Dakota or Utah, California is to the left. 
as they like to tell us, California is our future. It used to be in a good way. It was the high-tech place, the place of aviation and science and cars and modernity and the movie business and computers. It still is for many of those things, but it's sagging, falling under its own weight. Taxes, crime, illegal immigration, violence, censorship, malaise. Don't forget that the dilapidated city of Detroit, which looks like a post-apocalyptic ruin, that used to be the leading industrial city in America, the highest earning city in America. Now it's ruins, like some forgotten ancient civilization. I think that's what's at stake in 39 days. Did you see this? I, I, I see that a billionaire named Mike Bloomberg, who has a personal retinue of armed guards, who has private jets, he lives wherever, he flies wherever, he believes in a Democrat future because he himself doesn't have to worry about the malaise or the risk to his own life or the life of any of his descendants for generations to come. You know what he's doing, this billionaire? Let me read. Former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg and his team have raised more than $16 million to pay the court fines and fees of nearly 32,000 black and Hispanic Florida voters with felony convictions, an effort raised aimed at boosting turnout for Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. He's literally paying off the bills for 32,000 criminals. Apparently, they can't vote until they pay their fines. Bloomberg, who doesn't live in Florida, wants 32,000 criminals to vote there because he knows they'll vote Democrat. Of course they will. They're criminals. Those are garden variety criminals, you know, things like robbery, that sort of thing. But of course, the Democrats like the political criminals the best, the kind who rule the streets of Los Angeles. People like this, look at this. Now, that's not violence, although almost. That's in St. Petersburg, in Pinellas County, Florida, one of the four counties that flipped in Florida from Obama to Trump in 2016, squeaked through. That county, uh, Trump won just by 1%, by the way. 1% tipped the balance. Bloomberg is paying for 32,000 criminals to vote. But, you know, if people seeing... They keep seeing the violence in the Democrat parts of America. All the riots have been in Democrat cities. New York, D.C., Minneapolis, L.A., Portland, Seattle. That's Democrat America that's rioting and burning, burning itself down. If people keep seeing that on the news and then they see it starting to seep into red America, purple America, like Pinellas County, well... Which do you think, what do you think they'll, they'll do? Do you think that'll change their vote? I'd like to think that anyone in St. Petersburg, Florida, who saw that video of the thugs shouting and screaming and sitting right down at a restaurant table, someone who wasn't woke enough, I'd like to think that video turns hundreds of independent voters into Republicans. I'd like to think so. But is it enough to counteract 32,000 Bloomberg criminals? <laughs> I don't know. If I were an American, 
I'd feel a little bit like the guy driving that Prius right now. I just hope I'd make it. Stay with us for more. It was a big week in Parliament. The throne speech, Julie Payette, the Governor General, reading a speech written by the Prime Minister's office. I like to watch for key words in these speeches, like Alberta or farmers or civil liberties, things like that. There was a mention of Alberta and Saskatchewan and the oil-producing provinces, but the only mention was these provinces have to get ready to net zero their emissions, that's code word for, hey guys, can you get ready to shut down? Here, take a look. Canada cannot reach net zero without the know-how of the energy sector and the innovative ideas of all Canadians, including people in places like British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador. The government will support manufacturing natural resource and energy sectors as they work to transform to meet a net zero future, creating good paying and long lasting jobs. You wouldn't think that a province with the highest unemployment uh, in generations would be asked to bear the brunt of getting the country out of the pandemic recession, but that's how it looks. Joining us now via Skype from Edmonton is the senior columnist for the Edmonton Sun who has written about this subject and about Jason Kenney, the Premier's response to it. Our friend Lauren Gunter joins us now. Lauren, have, have I overstated? Sometimes thrown speech is going to be a bit vague. Do you think I've misunderstood what Julie Payette meant? Um, no. The words she, she uh, spoke. No, no, I, I, I don't think you've overestimated it. I think that's what it's going to come to. I think what the Liberals are doing is hoping very much that the that the obstacles they've thrown up to oil and gas in you know the tanker ban, the new uh, regime for approving uh, pipelines and, and oil sand projects and other energy related uh, energy related initiatives, all of that is going to continue to stymie uh, development of, of the energy sector in Canada. So much so that they won't have to declare it closed. It will just close on its own. I think we've already missed, well, the, the one estimate I saw today was $150 billion in extra uh, uh, investment, mostly uh, overseas investment. Um, in oil and gas, primarily in Alberta. Uh, my own estimate is it's probably closer to 200 billion since the Liberals came to power in 2015 that has not come to Alberta that otherwise would have come to Alberta. If you look at other oil producing areas in, uh, e even in the developed world, uh, our share of what has gone on since the uh, prices uh, recovered after the 2015 collapse our share should have been somewhere, I think, closer to $200 billion. So this is a government that has done everything it possibly could to, uh, to stymie oil and gas development. The one thing that it's done uh, in favor of, of oil and gas would be to continue to press through the Trans Mountain Pipeline. 
But I think they did that purely for political reasons. They, they had to be seen to be somewhat in favor of economic development. And Trans Mountain seemed the easiest thing for them to grab onto to prove they had some economic development interests at heart. And so that's what they've done. But almost everything else, they have tried everything they can, very successful, getting rid of the Energy East pipeline, uh, getting rid of the Northern Gateway pipeline, going uh, so hard on the Tech Resources Frontier oil sands mine that Tech Resources, after 10 years and a billion dollars in development costs, threw up their hands and said, you know, you don't want this. You're not going to let us have the permits. We're just walking away. And more and more and more of that stuff has happened because the liberals have put these obstacles up there. Not because the liberals went and said, you can't have the, the, the frontier uh, mine. They just made it so difficult that the, the company finally thought, ah, it's just not worth it. And that's the sort of thing that, that they're doing when they're talking about net zero. Uh, they could... They could uh, mandate that. They could dictate that there will be net zero. They could put hard uh, legal definitions on or limits on how much oil and gas development there could be. But they're not doing. They're 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 the liberal. They, they don't want to do that. They don't want to do the the bold thing. What they want to do is get their way by kind of sneaky methods. And I think they're doing it. And I, I and I think so. Yeah, I don't think you are overestimating what. Payette uh, meant, what was meant by the words that Payette spoke on behalf of the government. Right. You mentioned Trans Mountain, and I saw an interview with the president of uh, the, the company that's building it. I mean, he, uh, the ownership is a little murky to me, but he is a lifelong pipeline builder. He knows his stuff, and he sure sounded positive. There is pipeline construction, but it's in Alberta mainly. When it gets to the lower mainland of BC, because that's where the pipeline ends. It'll be easy in Alberta. It may well be easy even in eastern BC, rural. But let me show you a quick clip. I think this is from Bloomberg. He was asked a, a really fair question. What will you do if there's protesters? And he said, well, we'll take action. Here, take a quick look at this. I think it's fair to say another challenge that you're likely going to face will be protesters as we head towards those areas. How do you anticipate dealing with that? Yeah. We, we keep a close eye on activity. Uh, we obviously, you know, don't discourage, you know, uh, law-abiding, peaceful protest activity. That's everybody's right in our society, and, and we don't discourage that. But to the extent that it impedes our work at our work sites or, or threatens or, or causes unsafe conditions, then we'll take immediate action. Um, uh, we're, we're, you know, um, prepared for whatever might come our way, but at the same time, we're really hopeful that it's going to be peaceful and law-abiding and that the men and women working on this project uh, can continue to. When you, say when you say immediate action, what happens if these protests turn violent, as we've seen with some of the other protests around pipelines? Yeah, the authorities have their jobs to do, and, and you know, we're in regular contact with authorities, and, and we are inclined to take, you know, immediate and swift action. And, and we've got an injunction in British Columbia that prevents anybody from impeding the work or creating unsafe conditions. Um, we're, we're patient. Um, we, will, we will take the necessary steps, but we'll ensure that the work is safe and can proceed. I like his attitude, but I don't think a company can take action right. other than running to court. 
And even with a court order, he can put that on a stack of 10 other court orders if the RCMP won't enforce yeah. it. And we know Trudeau certainly wouldn't use the military. Here's my question for you. Do you think Justin Trudeau really will clear the way of his environmentalist allies like Sapora Berman and all those groups that helped get him elected in BC? Do you think he will really clear the path for that pipeliner to get all the way down to, to burn a BBC? I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm not entirely sure he won't, uh, but I'm pretty sure he won't. I mean, right now, as you said, most of the construction is in Alberta. Some of the construction is in the interior of BC. I went past it uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, it was nice to see. Uh, but it's in a place where it's hard to get kombucha and fair trade pour over coffee. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the environmentalists are not there. Oh my goodness, do you, you think in McClure, BC, we could, we could get a fine kombucha? Well, I don't think so. Well, let's not go up there and protest. <laughs> and that's, that's oat milk. Sort of oat milk, that's, that's the new thing. Yeah, but when you get to when you get to Burnaby, it's much easier. And if you re remember, uh, there were boycotts. What would you call them? And blockades? Not quite all it was. There were there were protesters who had set up camps around the uh, terminus for the Trans Mountain about two years ago. And neither the BC government, which is NDP and also held in power by the Green Party. Neither the BC government nor the Canadian government would do anything about it. So the, the, the BC government wouldn't go to court to, uh, to back up the company. Uh, and the company would go to court, it would get these injunctions. The courts would say, yeah, they're on your property. They shouldn't be there. Uh, and then the federal government could have sent the federal RC, could have sent the national RCMP in to do it, but they never did. And so Burnaby is patrolled locally. The, their local police force is the RCMP, so the local RCMP would go over and they would arrest a few people and they'd take them away and there'd be a media uh, circus about that. But it wasn't being enforced by the provincial government or the federal government. So that gives me an indication that the federal government is not keen to uh, to see this completed. They'd like to, they, they're happy enough to see it strung out for a long time because they can say, you know, we're we're the owners. We're pushing this through, uh, but we really don't want to see anyone hurt. We don't want to see anything roughed up by the police. Um, we're a little worried about that. So, so we're going to negotiate with. Well, there's no negotiating with these environmentalists um, because they have no skin in the game. They don't care. It it doesn't matter to them. Their jobs are not dependent. They at least they don't think their jobs are dependent on oil and gas revenue. But I think one of the things that comes out of the throne speech, and, and Alberta Premier Jason Kenney made this abundantly clear at his own press conference on Thursday, the day after the throne speech, one of the things that, that comes out of the throne speech that hasn't been talked about by the Liberals is that they simply cannot finance everything that they're talking about without a recovery of the oil and gas sector. The oil and gas sector for the last 20 years, 25 years, has been the number one export industry in the country and the, and the largest single source of government revenue. It sustains about 800,000 jobs across the country, not just in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but across the country. And if you think that you're suddenly going to get all of these people into fanciful green energy, alternate economy, 
jobs that pay just as well, you really do have a problem in your in your thinking. Your logic is really faulty because that's just not going to happen. Yeah. In Ontario in 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 the nineteen uh, sorry in the in the twenty tens had their Green Energy Act two thousand and nine until about twenty fourteen, and they went. They, they spent $50 billion of public money to subsidize the startup of alternate energy, wind, solar, bio. Uh, they converted a, an, an old um, coal uh, power plant in Thunder Bay to burning spruce chips and things. Uh, they spent $50 billion doing that. It was one of the reasons why Ontario was the most indebted Subnational government in the world for a time. So that means, that, you know, for any province or state in any country, they were the most indebted uh, of any of those in the entire world because of their green energy plan. And at the end of all of that, the Auditor General in in Ontario said, "Well, it didn't produce any new energy. It hasn't reduced emissions, and far and away, it did not produce the two hundred and fifty thousand high-paying." alternate energy jobs that the that the liberal Ontario government had promised. It produced about 12,000. Uh, and most of those disappeared when the subsidies ended. So that's what we're going to end up with federally. We're going to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on alternate energy. Billions of dollars we don't have because we're shutting down the regular energy economy. And at the end, what few jobs are created will disappear and we will not have solved our emissions. Um, we will not have lowered our emissions in any meaningful way anyway. Hmm. And, and that's, I think, at the heart of what Kenny was, was talking about uh, in his press conference. And that, that is the, the biggest single flaw in the throne speech. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned Jason Kenny, and that's the subject of your new column. Let me just read the title. For those who haven't read it yet, it's called Trudeau ignoring that there will be no recovery from pandemic without strong energy sector. Um, that's in the Edmonton Sun. A couple years ago, about a, just over a year ago, there was this McLean's Magazine cover that looked really tough, and it was called The Resistance. And you had Andrew Shear flanked by Doug Ford and Jason Canney and Scott Moe and Brian Pallister, and these were the young bucks of the right who are going to stop Justin Trudeau. Well, Andrew Shear's gone. Uh, Doug Ford has daily uh, phone chats with Christopher Freeland. He couldn't be more proud of Justin Trudeau. He's having joint press conferences with him. Um, really, the only one, I mean, I, I like Scott Moe. He's about to head into an election himself. The only one who's really fighting out of the five men on that cover is Jason Kenney. Here, let me play you a little clip. I, I thought it was sort of funny. He was looking at some of the new age kind of yeah. Uh, well, he, he used the phrase kooky. Here's a quick clip from Jason Kenney talking about the Black Lives Matter theme in yeah. the throne speech, which is weird to me because that's so much an American political movement. We didn't have slavery here. We didn't have Jim Crow. We didn't have the Civil War. Um, we didn't have the Ku Klux Klan. That's an American story, but Trudeau seems to be mimicking it. Here's a quick clip of Kenny responding to some of the baffle gab from the throne speech. Last week, I was in Ottawa with premiers representing a consensus of all 13 provinces and territories calling on the federal government in the throne speech to focus 
on two key priorities, on uh, health and the, and the economy and jobs. Uh, we also asked for action to show fairness in the Federation through reform of the fiscal stabilization program. These issues were not addressed in yesterday's throne speech. There was space for every bright, shiny object, every possible political distraction. Kooky academic theories like intersectionality find their way, find their way into yesterday's throne speech. But not one word about health transfers for the provinces that are carrying 80% of the costs as our population ages and we cope with a pandemic. You say that Jason Kenney is too polite and too diplomatic to really smash and bash the feds. And I think you're right. He's, he's in control of himself and he's professional. And he, he, he has a general respect for politicians of other parties. He, I think he gets along. He's not, he's not mean, uh, despite no. his critics saying so. But I think he's really all alone in fighting Trudeau. Who's the anti-Trudeau? Maybe Aaron O'Toole will grow into it. But Lauren, in your opinion, who is the counterweight to Trudeau? I don't see it in the courts. I don't see it in the media. I don't see it in Ottawa. Where's the counterweight? No, it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Supreme Court sides with uh, the, uh, the, some of the provincial courts on, uh, on the carbon tax. And, and, and they strike down the carbon tax. That, that might be a counterweight there, but that will be many months from now before, before we hear about that. Uh, I think Kenny is the only counterweight, and I don't think he has been as much of a counterweight as he could be. I think he, he does need to get a little bit tougher with the feds. I think he started that this week. This, my favorite line of his was that the throne speech was an imaginary plan for a fantasy country. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what it is. Yeah. The federal liberals have this absolutely otherworldly concept that you can shut down all of the carbon-based industries in the country. And in a heartbeat, all you need to do is sprinkle a little bit of taxpayer money on top of it, or even a lot of taxpayer money, and something new will grow up. And, and the people I wish would grow up are the federal liberals. That, that, that simply is insane. Uh, that there is no way that that's going to happen. And the, the thing that really irks me about all of this is that many of the same people who designed the failed plan in Ontario that we were talking about earlier are the same people who designed the new federal plan. And they don't, in their own minds, even see that the Ontario plan was a failure. Because they got woke, they they they, yeah. they they showed off their woke credentials on the environment, and that's all that matters to liberals and progressives is that they appear to be woke. That's why they're big on the Black Lives Matter thing yeah. in Canada, even though it's not really a Canadian thing, because it shows how woke they are yeah. on race. Uh, the, the fact that Trudeau has insisted that that there is as much systemic discrimination in Canada as there is in the United States is, is not because he intends to do anything about it. It's because saying that makes him woke. Yeah. And being woke is the ultimate achievement of progressives and liberals, not actually changing it, yeah. but simply proving that they themselves are as smart and sensitive and caring and inclusive as anyone else. Well, let me sum up our whole conversation. We're in deep trouble. Lauren, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Nice to see you, my friend. You bet. You too.
All right, there you have it, Lauren Gunter. He's the senior columnist at the Edmonton Sun, and I recommend his latest column in the Sun. The headline is Trudeau ignoring that there will be no recovery from pandemic without strong energy sector. You can find that online or on newsstands in Edmonton. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back to my monologue about Kean in Ottawa. Alan writes, it seems that Catherine McKenna seems to be hiding behind her skirt. I, I take your point. I mean, she uses her gender as her first line of defense. Whenever she screws up, says something wrong or dumb, she says, you're just being sexist. No, I don't think so. You know, I used to have a joke that I would tell. Oh, that officer, he only pulled me over for speeding because I'm Jewish. I never actually said that, of course, but you see the joke? How would the officer know I'm Jewish if I'm pulled over for speeding? Catherine McKenna isn't hated because she's a woman. She's hated because she's hostile to anyone who disagrees with her. She's incompetent as a minister. She's lost track of billions of dollars. She's a hypocrite. She confesses on tape to lying to the public. That's why people hate her. It's not because she's a woman. And it's a bit pitiful that she reaches for that. It's almost like that's what she thinks women should do to get ahead. I don't think so, and I hope women don't use her as a role model. Corey writes, speaking of McKenna, who wears a mask in a posed picture? Every Democrat does, every lefty. Go on Twitter and look at the photo icons of people. Those with masks, I think they're telling you something about themselves and what they think of you. On my interview with Mark Morano about Climate Hustle 2, Bruce writes... As for Climate Hustle 2, I intend on buying copies of both the first and second movie for my local library. Unless some bureaucrat says it must be excluded from the collection, I know my rural friends will be glad to borrow those informative discs. You know, that's a good question. I remember uh, some of my old books, Ethical Oil, Shakedown. Hundreds of copies were bought by libraries across Canada. I'll have to check. I wonder if any libraries have dared to purchase my books, The Libranos, or China virus. I wonder. Unfortunately, I think librarians have become censors just like the rest of the woke mob. Well, that's the show for today. Enjoy the weekend. We've got so many great videos coming your way. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.